right now it's time for our weekly installment of Sound Bites. First, we take a look at the bill that affects food, farming, and our environment in the Maryland General Assembly. Now we're about to talk to Betsy Nicholas, who is executive director of Chesapeake Waterkeepers, who often joins us. She's in Annapolis. Uh, fighting for a number of bills that are coming up, uh, up for vote and consideration. Betsy, welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Good to have you with us. Glad to be here. So um, before we jump into the stuff you're in the middle of now in Annapolis, um, I want to start with the Clean Water Commerce Act um, and just why, what it is and how does it fit into this larger scheme of the Bay and clean water. Uh, this is kind of a strange bill. Um, it's going through some changes right now in terms of some amendments. So, so where it started is not where it is <laughs> at this particular moment, uh-huh. um, which is always sort of a fun thing about the legislative process. But um, in terms of where it started, I feel like they spent more time coming up with the snazzy name of the Clean Water Commerce Act than really thinking through the mechanics of the bill. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Everything reminds me of George Orwell thinking about how people use words. Is why, <laughs> right? So. Yeah. Um, so, what the bill started out doing was taking ten million dollars from the critically important Bay Restoration Fund, and that's the money that we all contribute to that helps clean up the Chesapeake Bay, and those. Those funds are really, really critically important for all of our sort of mandatory urban cleanups and, and how we're going to get to meeting that total maximum daily load or that bay cleanup plan. Um, so all of those, you know, minimum amounts of cleanup that you need to meet in all the municipalities and the city of Baltimore and all of our cities um, are met in part through those monies, and it would take $10 million from that funding to essentially jumpstart um, nutrient trading programs. And there's a lot of interest um, from the Department of Environment in nutrient trading with the thought that it could help um, reduce some pollution. Mm -hmm. But trading in and of itself does not reduce pollution. Yeah, you know, one of the things I, I'm trying to interrupt, that it's really yeah. interesting to me what you're raising here because this whole notion of training, it's it's always been so problematic for me just in terms of how we think about it. So I can I can pollute you uh, in in up in Cecil County if you trade off so I won't pollute you in Baltimore City. Isn't that basically what we're talking about? Exactly what we're talking about. Right. So in terms of a bill like this that takes money away from pollution reduction, guaranteed pollution reduction, um, and puts it towards pollution trading, I think the huge concern is that we're not going to be reducing pollution. We're just going to be moving it around. So what is happening with this bill then? What is this bill going to, what, what, what do you think, where do you think it might take us uh, if, it's, if it goes through? And where do you think it's, uh, where do you think it's going? Well, Fortunately, there were a whole lot of folks, not just in the environmental communities, but the the counties, um, the agricultural community, that came out and said, "This is a poorly conceived bill," and um, does you know that people didn't think it was going to take us where we needed to go. So everybody and anybody has thrown some amendments at it. Um, so it's a little bit unclear what happens next because it's moving around so much. Um, so certainly, 
what where it started out is not where it's going to end up. But it's hard to tell right now if we could end up with something that could be acceptable on all sides because I think it's going to change so much between where it is now and the end. But it's also a really, you know, concerning way to make law is by that sort of act of so much horse trading. So, so, so this this bill may not pass. May not go anywhere. So it's odd when you said that all these groups that usually oppose each other are coming together on this. Um, what just for argument's sake, what would be the bill you would like to see put in its place? I kind of like the idea of spending our Bay Restoration funds with, uh, you know, mandatory cleanup of uh, pollution. So, I don't think this bill makes sense at all. Um, and feel like we were better off without it. If there is something that goes towards uh, pollution trading uh, or nutrient trading at all, I feel like it would have to be something that puts limits in place on it and ensures that we don't have um, uh, hotspots, which would be uh, allowing pollution to sort of accumulate in one area while it gets cleaner in certain other watersheds. Interesting. So do, what do you think of the bill's possibilities at this point? you think it's going to be killed? Uh, <laughs> hard to say. I, I think uh, it really depends on whether there are enough um, sort of common ground or there's enough common ground that people can reach on it to pull out something that doesn't look like a you know six-headed monster, um, but right now it's looking a bit like a six-headed monster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because the whole idea of just taking money out of an allocated fund for bay restoration and moving it somewhere else—it's just robbing Peter to pay Paul without thinking about what it really costs to clean the bay and, and what it would mean to kind of do that in a unified way. Yep, exactly. So now there's this is not a bill yet, but or is it the the uh, uh, polystyrene phase out? So, which is the it, all the stuff it's we a bill. It, it's a bill. Okay. Yep. Um, Senate Bill One Eighty Six. And so this is part of the the, the, the Baltimore Harbor Riverkeeper. One of the water keepers is 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 uh, in this help sponsors as I say push it. I mean, t- how did it come about? Yes, um, and there's been a couple of different folks. The Baltimore Harbor Waterkeeper and Blue Water Baltimore have been working on this along with Trash Free Maryland. Um, And the concept is already here and working. Montgomery County has been doing, has um, had these restrictions in place for over a year now, and Prince George's County um, has adopted them a little bit more recently, just starting in uh, mid-2016, and uh, they work. <laughs> I, I live in Tacoma, so we have them there, and um, it, it limits um, styrofoam, polystyrene, which is commercially known as styrofoam, in packaging for uh, you know fast food takeout, for different types of packaging in commercial use. Um, it doesn't limit it for some other purposes like construction, so that kind of uh, insulation foam, it, that can still happen. But the big problem is that this is one of the fifth largest waste products in landfills, and it doesn't deteriorate. It just stays there forever, leaching different chemicals.
chemicals and pollution into our water sources, as well as filling up landfills and um, really getting into our waterways. So the Baltimore Harbor and the Anacostia River and the Potomac have huge amounts of these styrofoam containers and waste products getting into these rivers. So the, the funds we were just talking about, the Bay Restoration Funds, a lot of that money is going to trash removal programs to clean up all of these waste products getting into our waterways. So, I mean, it, 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 so polystyrene, of course, is another petroleum-based product, right? Yes. Um, that has no de- has its decomposition rate of over 500 years, as we said, and and that and and um, and I was thinking about that in in conjunction with plastic bags we use in stores. So I mean, but so this is a, a has to be a huge lobbying effort from the manufacturing side not to phase this out. Correct. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of industries that you know. Uh, find it profitable. This is how they make their business to use it. It's the, you know, the oil and gas and the plastics councils and stuff who are using these products and uh, have been using them a long time and want to keep doing it. So again, here we have, so what do you think the chances of this bill are? I think it's pretty good. I think that, um, you know, as, as we said, Montgomery County's doing it, Prince George's County's doing it, um, and it works. So we can... We've already shown that this, that there are other ways to do it. There are replacement products that work and are not driving businesses um, under by their costs of using more sustainable products and less packaging. So we can make these changes. But you're saying it's industrial use and construction use will still be going on? Yes, um, because those aren't uh, entering the waste stream in the same problem. Uh, you know, they're not leading to these problems of polluting our rivers and waterways in the same way. Um, they don't have the same short-term life cycle issues that, uh, that, that we're having with all of these packaging products. Um, I wonder, what, what do you think about the argument around this, around people's jobs? Jo- jobs in terms of the people who are manufacturing this stuff. Has that been part of this discussion? has been part of the discussion, um, but again, I think that that's been shown that there's that many of the facilities can just switch to different product usage and different technologies. But I, I think that that's also not an argument that we can use when we're looking at um, significant health impacts and the significant financial burden of cleaning up. You know, our waterways, um, the long-lasting landfill impacts, um, we could sort of talk about that people lost their jobs when we switched from typewriters to computers, but I don't think that we're going to say that we should go back and bring back a typewriter industry. um, (laughs) Wait, 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 what what do you have against typewriters? I like the sound of typewriters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I, think we, I think we can get a whole lot more, more done with computers, you know. So, so at a certain point, um, when something is an outdated technology, when it has bad impacts on the environment or on our communities, we do have to make those changes. And will it have impacts on some industries? Of course it will. But, um, but we still need to be able to grow and move on. So now, you're down there in Annapolis today because uh, you're working on a couple, you're testifying working on some bills. You're, you're working on uh, the food donation pilot, right? Yes. S- which means what? 
Um, so this seems to me like a, just a really common sense, good for everybody bill. And what it does is um, encourages farmers to donate leftover foods from farmer, farmer's markets um, to uh, shelters and uh, need-based uh, need organizations. And in exchange, they receive a tax credit. So this hmm. will encourage more healthy foods to get to those in need. Hmm. So, uh, uh, and, and how's that bill uh, rambling through? Uh, well, we'll find out this afternoon. <laughs> okay, we'll have to get but, an update next week then from you about yeah, where that exactly. is. So the, the hearings are both today in the Senate and the House on that, but um, it's hard for me to imagine there'd be a lot of opposition to this bill um, because it it seems like it's sort of a positive for everybody involved, that it's beneficial for the farmers and it's beneficial for the communities, that these are communities, you know, that don't have opportunities to have a whole lot of healthy, fresh foods, and this will give much more opportunity to get those sorts of healthy fruits and vegetables um, available to them while also giving those uh, tax credits and incentives to farmers. So, you know, like somebody's first reaction to this could be, oh, so you mean that the poor folks get to throw away food, that food that's no good. But I mean, and that's, I've heard that from some people. Well, it's, it's not throw away food, though. It's just, you know, uh, for anybody who goes to farmer's markets, sometimes you're not going to sell everything in that single day. But for farmers, instead of having them bring it all the way home, this gives them the opportunity to donate it instead and get that tax credit. Um, so it doesn't have to make the trip there and home. Um, so it's not it's perfectly good, healthy, fresh food and not throwaway food. It just gives them the opportunity to donate it rather than uh, have it make the trip back. Now, one of the things we talked about when you were last with us was the antibiotics bill when it comes to uh, farm animals. Uh, yes. in the state of Maryland. So uh, you are also testifying about that. So what's the update on that bill? Yes, we had a great hearing yesterday um, in the Senate on it uh, with a number of farmers here to uh, speak in favor of the bill, health professionals, veterinarians. And uh, it was a really great hearing. And uh, there was some opposition to it, but I feel like there was certainly a lot more support um, there are about 23 co-sponsors of the bill in the Senate. Um, today is going to be the House hearing. There's also a great turnout for that um, in support, including people like uh, Michael Berger from Elevation Burger and some big businesses that have been really focused on this issue as well. So this is, with, with Purdue already kind of, Acquiescing early, saying we're not using antibiotics anymore. I mean, they did that a couple of years back. Um, is there much opposition? I mean, where where does uh, what's what's the industry saying about this? So there's been some opposition. Um, Delmarva Poultry, the industry lobbying group, has come out in opposition. They said that the requirements are duplicative of federal standards, and and that's not true. It, it, they focus on different issues. Um, what do you mean? Some of the, the federal standards that came out a couple of years ago focus um, specifically on growth, that um, the sub-therapeutic uses of antibiotics should not be focused solely on making animals larger. But 
what we're asking for in this bill is for no subtherapeutic use. And that and what the subtherapeutic means is that animals should not be given daily routine doses of antibiotics to keep them from getting sick. Um, if an animal is sick, then they can be given antibiotics to cure their disease or make them healthy again. But we don't want it to be given for that prophylactic use to keep them from getting sick. And that's where we get these uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria from that are causing the human health problems. So any any of the bills we should be uh, aware of before um, we let you run back through the halls of Annapolis and get your work done? Uh, well, we've got a couple other things winding through. Uh, there's going to be a study on atrazine and its impacts in right. waterways. And um, there's possibly a healthy soils bill brewing, but that one still is in the works, still brewing. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll explore those the next time we talk then. We'll see. Okay, what, sounds great. We'll do all that. Betsy Nicholas, always great to have you on the program with us. Appreciate you taking the time here. Mark Steiner showing sound bites. Um, Betsy Nicholas is the executive director of Chesapeake Waterkeepers, and uh, she's in Annapolis lobbying for the bills we've been talking about. Uh, and we'll check in with her later on to see just how this is all winding through the hallways and the committees. Betsy, thank you so much. Great. Always, always great talking to you, too. Thanks so much to Betsy for that interview and that overview of what's happening in Annapolis. We'll be checking with her more later in the session. Right now, we're playing a piece from the archives where I speak with Sandra Ellix Katz, a fermentation revivalist who wrote the book Wild Fermentation The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved another book called The Art of Fermentation So let me just take a step back for a moment with you and let's just talk about what this really means I mean because fermentation as you write about is it's this ancient process of how we preserved our foods one of the ways we preserved our foods before we had refrigeration so it really is kind of looking at some people see it as so primitive with refrigerators why do we even need it if you could well i mean you know i, I mean that that, that 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 that's an awfully um uh, uh limited perspective i mean even today in 2013 most of the people on planet earth do not have a refrigerator in their home um and you know given the amount of uh, uncertainty and anxiety about energy futures uh, there's no guarantee that we'll always have access to uh, adequate supplies of cheap energy for everyone to uh, maintain a fermentation slowing device in their home so, but you also talk about the fermentation and and probiotics in this piece that was uh, um, that that I saw in Yes Magazine, which I think is really important because we look at bacteria uh, as and dirt as our enemy, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, for any of us who were raised in the United States uh, in the second half of the 20th century, we were thoroughly indoctrinated with the idea that bacteria are our enemies. Bacteria are to be avoided. Bacteria are to be eradicated. Um, and, um, you know, they're nothing but a, nuis- a nuisance. And I think that we've really, um, uh, you know, really thanks uh, uh, more than anything to new methods in biology where we're, we're rounding out our picture. 
picture and developing a more uh, nuanced uh, uh, appreciation of bacteria. And, um, you know, the emerging consensus in evolutionary biology is that all life is descended from bacteria. And the corollary to that is that no form of life has ever lived without bacteria. And, um, you know, we are utterly dependent on bacteria that are, uh, that are in our bodies and which, in fact, outnumber our bodily cells by something like 10 to 1. Um, and similarly, um, uh, you know, a carrot and an insect and, you know, any form of life is, is, is dependent on uh, the bacteria that it associates with and, and, and really from which it is descended. So talking about, let me just get this one part here. So I, I know that um, you're interested in sharing this with us. I'm interested in it. During the fall, one of my favorite things to, to make is uh, what I call my, a root stew. You know, I like, I like putting together uh, every imaginable root that you, can, that you can think of, plopping it into a pot and making it with a good vegetable stock and creating this incredible root stew that uh, all can eat and uh, vegetarians and everybody else and vegans and just enjoy as well as carnivores who want to change the pace. Um, and you have, I understand, a recipe for fermenting, fermenting root vegetables. Yeah, root vegetables ferment really nicely. I mean, let me just say more broadly than, than fermentation, I mean, you know, root vegetables are, are, are a miracle. And, uh, you know, at this time of year and most of the climate uh, climates of the United States um, root vegetables are are, are abundant and I've, I've been you know really trying to make use of all of the radishes and, and 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 turnips coming out of my garden and being gifted to me by other friends with with gardens and um, you know certainly stewing them uh, roasting them um, I make pancakes with them but I also love to ferment them um, and I don't have a straightforward recipe to to offer That's but right. um, you can use any combination of root vegetables or any single root vegetable. Uh, uh, radishes of various description. I love the big black Spanish radishes. I love the watermelon radishes. I love big daikon radishes, but any kind of radishes, any kind of turnips, and turnips also just come in this extraordinary uh, dazzling array of, of, of colors. Um, uh, uh, rutabaga, uh, carrots, uh, beets, um, uh, you know, there's really no root vegetable that you couldn't ferment either together, together with leafy greens, uh, or or solo. And what you want to do is expose surface area, um, you know, on some or most or even all of the root vegetables. This could be grating and making them uh, into very small pieces with a huge amount of surface area. This could be slicing them um, in different kinds of ways. Uh, you know, this really is the realm of of, of of creative expression and, and, and how you choose to um, um, uh, chop up the vegetables. But what you're trying to do is expose surface area. Then lightly salt. You, there, you don't need to sort of be meticulous about this. You don't need to measure a certain amount of salt. I mean, this is really like any other recipe that says salt to taste. So lightly salt them, then mix everything up and, and salt, uh, uh, and then add more salt if you want to. Um, it's always easier to add salt than it is to subtract salt. Uh, the simplest vessel to use would be a jar. Uh, a one-quart uh, jar, wide mouth jars are the easiest to work with. A one-quart jar will fit about two pounds of vegetables. A gallon-sized jar will take about eight pounds of vegetables to fill. Um, the 55-gallon barrel that I recently filled took uh, about 450 pounds of vegetables wow. to fill. Um, 
So, uh, uh, so you, you, you shred your vegetables, uh, uh, lightly salt. If you want, you can leave some of the vegetables whole. I love to bury some whole vegetables in amongst the, um, uh, the, the chopped up vegetables. But the point of chopping the vegetables is to pull water out of the vegetables and the salt helps with that process. But then if you get in there with your clean hands and squeeze a little bit or else take some blunt instrument and pound a little bit, what you'll be doing is breaking down cell walls and, um, and basically enabling the cells to give up their juices so you can get the vegetables submerged under their juices. Once the vegetables are nice and juicy, you just stuff them into a jar uh, with some force so the vegetables are submerged under their liquid. I like to put the lids on loosely and just leave them on the kitchen counter um, and then uh, and then every morning just uh, you know press down um, uh, uh, on the surface and make sure they get submerged. If you do this in, in a larger kind of a vessel like a crock, um, I generally like to leave a weight-bearing down, pressing the vegetables and keeping them uh, under the brine um, all the time. So very quick, the, ama- I'm, I'm the sorry, amount of time is highly variable. Um, uh, you know, you could ferment it for three or four days, uh, three or four weeks, or even if you had a cellar that's not heated three or four months. What I like to recommend that people do is just taste it at regular intervals and get a sense of the um, uh, uh, spectrum of flavors. And if you ever taste it and feel like you don't want it to get any more sour, then move it into your fermentation slowing device, put it into the fridge, and that will just slow it down to an imperceptible rate. Well, this is always great to talk to you. Sandra Alex Katz, of course, one of our nation's leading experts on fermentation. He's known as a fermentation revivalist. He wrote books like Wild Fermentation, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, and The Art of Fermentation. His uh, writing and his books will all be linked to on our website here. And Sandra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Always a pleasure. So we're now about to talk with uh, Tim Carman, who's a food writer and critic for the Washington Post, and Mara Jutkis, who is a reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, the article they wrote called Restaurants Depend on Immigrants, Trump's Orders Could Hit Them Particularly Hard. And Tim and Mara, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, you know, in all this look at, at um, immigration issues, uh, uh, this is something that kind of gets overlooked a little bit, I think. Um, given how restaurants have exploded and ethnic restaurants have exploded and so many Latinos and others are working inside of restaurants. I mean, so, and I, I think, Mara, I guess it's um, it's a much bigger issue around this immigration piece than most of us even conceive. Yeah, I think um, one thing to remember is that immigrants are really the backbone of this industry. And all of this political uncertainty is having a huge effect on restaurants because it's making immigrants fearful um, about their jobs, first of all, but also about their families, which can also affect their work. Um, a lot of these immigrants who, who run restaurants, they're entrepreneurs, too, and their families might work in the restaurant. They also might have families that they're supporting elsewhere. And, and just the degree of uncertainty is really making people very fearful, fearful and it could have a, a major impact on restaurants in the area and across the United States. One of the things, Tim, the article did for me was also... Um... There's been this real divide, it seems, in many discussions I've heard around immigration. And uh, we went to a uh, 
an immigration rally that David Simon put on in Baltimore here the other night and, and to cover mm-hmm. that and be there. <clears throat> and, you know, people talk about the Muslim, the, the, what we call the Muslim ban and, and also about ICE rounding up people who are mostly Latinos uh, uh, from the Latino community. And the two ideas never kind of join on saying that the connection between the two communities and how this immigration issue is affecting them all. But in the restaurant industry, especially the way you wrote the article, that connection is really is really clear, um, both in terms of the people who may be owning a Middle Eastern restaurant and the Latino workers who work in that restaurant. Uh, definitely, I mean, you know, there are the as Maura just said, you know, the the restaurant industry is so dominated by, um, you know, immigrants from other countries, and and they're not just Latinos who may be cooking. Uh, every possible cuisine in the world. Right, right. You know, it, it may be Italian, it, it may be Greek, uh, it may be Malaysian, but uh, the people that are often cooking it are Latino. Uh, they're, they're known industry-wide as being very good cooks, very hard workers, and very adaptable at different cuisines. But other than that, you know, as as the story that, we, that Maura and I put together, it's like, there are so many restaurants, you know, they might be Persian, um, they might be Iraqi, uh, might be uh, Yemeni. Uh, they, they have uh, issues uh, tied to their own, you know, tied to this travel ban. Obviously, it's, it's on hold right now, but the Trump administration is fighting that, looking for maybe a backdoor way to uh, implement the ban again. But it will have impact. It might have impact on um, employees or uh, 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 owners or relations that uh, are involved in the restaurant, because often these restaurants are uh, classically family-run. And the, the numbers of people, I think, that you all outlined in the article, Mara, is also kind of stunning. The, 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 the numbers of people who are foreign-born workers who are actually in this industry um, I, I think we don't have a concept of that. I, I didn't until I saw the article. Yeah, yeah. So there are 1.8 million foreign-born workers um, in the industry, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, um, the, you know, that's, that's a lot of people who are really going to be affected by this. And these are also, you know, a lot of times people mischaracterize uh, the people who work in the restaurant industry as perhaps having come here illegally. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. There are a lot of legally um, permissible workers who who are also going to be affected by all these different political measures because their families who they might employ or who um, you know who who they're working to bring to this country or or um, people who who are having travel restrictions, it's really going to impact all numbers of workers who um, who who are foreign born who are in this restaurant industry because, it's, you know, it's, it's much more widespread, I think, than people characterize it. So I, when, they, when, that, when the uh, Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics puts that out, um, 1.8 million farm-born workers um, working in, the, in this industry, it, does that include the undocumented? Or are we just talking about people they know they can officially and legally count? Or does that count everybody inside that industry? Well, so it's really it's really hard to count undocumented workers. Right. is what we learned. We were really trying to find some good statistics on that, but um, but of course, you know, due to the nature of it, it's, it's really difficult to to get exact numbers on that. So there was a survey um, from Pew that estimates that 10% of the workforce the workforce 
in what they call eating and drinking places. So that could, um, you know, that could be bars, but could also be like hotel restaurants. It's not just, um, you know, restaurants in, that we're thinking of in the more traditional sense. Um, but that, you know, that's that's how many people they're estimating are here um, uh, and, and are, uh, are unauthorized to work, mm-hmm. about 10% of that workforce. So, and that, you know, people, and the, one of the things you write about in, this, in the article is also the fear factor, which I've also found in lots of people I've interviewed and people I know in both uh, the Arab American and, and the Latino communities, um, just socially, uh, the, the fear is palpable. I mean, I, I, that, and I asked the people you interviewed, Tim, for both of you doing this article, I mean, you, you could, you, you got the sense you, that you could, you wrote about that, but I, Give me your sense of that when you talk to people. I mean, it seems like it's, it's, I want people to understand how deep it is. Well, you know, I think it's pervasive on a number of different levels. And it definitely impacts the workers, um, but it impacts their families. And it can even impact um, the people inside restaurants. Uh, I was just talking to a restaurateur uh, today who is originally from Iran. And he's run a restaurant here in D.C. for nearly 27 years. And he said he's never had any incident, like never. And he used the words never, ever uh, for emphasis. And he said hmm. that changed uh, inauguration week. said there was a young white male, approximately late 20s, walked in to the bar of his restaurant uh, gave a Heil Hitler salute, Mm. and then started to question the immigration status uh, of the employees there, as if he were from ICE himself. Um, And the owner said it was, you know, not only really painful for the employees there, but he said there there were diners there that were just didn't know what to do. you know they they don't want to get mixed up they they but they're uncomfortable and this guy is clearly ruining their experience out so i mean i i i think that you know it's not just uh the employees and and certainly it, it is mostly the employees you know they're, they're employees that um you know they they have to worry about um not only can are they going to get there's a place of employment going to get raided uh, today, but uh, they have to worry about their children. Their children may be uh, born in the United States, and if they uh, get picked up in a raid and put in some sort of, you know, uh, you know, a deportation system where they could be in a camp for, you know, months, they have to figure out what their uh, children are going to do. And apparently, a lot of them are. Uh, trying to uh, put together documents, legal documents, where they give custody of their children to uh, their nearest relative who has a green card. Uh, I, you know, there's a group you mentioned in this article, uh, Ayuda. What, is that right, Mara? Um, yes, Ayuda. Yeah. And the, and the work they do, um, it, that uh, that and that that the budget much of it comes from the federal government. Talk a bit about that. Um, actually, I'll let Tim talk about that. Okay, he was fine. the one who spoke with Aida. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know it's hard to know who did yeah, what yeah, on these stories. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I talked to Ayuda. It was a, a 50-50 shot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I got it wrong. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I talked to Ayuda. And, you know, the interesting thing is that obviously they're seeing an uh, uh, increase in 
uh, need for their uh, services, you know, which includes legal services for uh, immigrants. But uh, the problem is also that um, they're looking at potential budget cuts. Uh, you know, they they were talking about at least. 50% of their uh, 4 million annual budget comes from uh, federal dollars of some sort. You know, and if, if this whole sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sure you remember the, the whole sanctuary cities mm -hmm. uh, executive order, you know, the, those are the cities that um, by law, they don't have to uh, help federal authorities with trying to uh, round up and deport uh, immigrants. And many uh, cities have uh, designated themselves as uh, sanctuary cities. But uh, the president, when he signed the executive order saying that he uh, these cities could risk federal funding if they don't assist with deportation efforts, uh, that could end up having a serious financial impact on like IUDA, which uh, if you know if the federal government follows through with that, they could lose up to half their funding, which then it would hurt their ability to help uh, the immigrants that are being targeted. I mean, one of the things that, that you know, in, in the article, I believe you talked about sanctuary restaurant, restaurants, mm -hmm. um, and which is an interesting idea. And I, let's explore that for a moment and how that fits into sanctuary cities. But I mean, the, the, but the bottom line is with all that, that they don't really have a legal stand. I mean, they can't. No. Yeah. Right. There's nothing there's nothing that a sanctuary restaurant can can do to prevent, um, say, that there were to be some kind of um, immigration rate on the restaurant. There's no um, legal standing with the sanctuary restaurant. What it really is is about um, kind of showing solidarity for their workers and trying to make their employees feel like this is a safe space. Um, and it also tells their employees um, that they will defend them in the incident. You know, if, if something were to happen, like what Tim just described um, at the restaurant in D.C., if someone were to walk in and hail Hitler, you know, at, um, at a restaurant, you know, it's kind of a way for the boss to say, like, we've got your back. We won't tolerate any bad behavior. This is a place where immigrants can feel safe. Um, however, just because it's called a sanctuary restaurant um, doesn't mean that it actually provides any sort of sanctuary. So so it's really um, just a, a show of solidarity. And, um, and it, it just helps people feel like they have a place here. Yeah, I think that's important because one of the things we did learn, I guess, in interviews we did the, earlier in the week that, you know, when ICE comes to your door, unless they have a, a warrant signed by a judge, you don't have to open that door. Mm -hmm. well, I didn't know that. And I don't know if it's the same thing with restaurants or private businesses, um, but there are really procedures that ICE often doesn't follow and they just come barging in and they're le actually legally not allowed to do that. Yeah, but, I can't speak exactly to, to what ICE's... Um, <clears throat> techniques and rights would be within a restaurant. Um, but I do know that they're, you know, a lot of these restaurant owners are really, really cognizant of the pain that their employees are going through, and they're really trying to show their solidarity in lots of different ways. You know, we've seen, um, we've seen restaurants putting up signs, immigrants are welcome here. We've seen restaurants printing out on the tickets of their receipts, um, immigrants make America great. They're really trying to show their solidarity in a lot of ways. And one of those is also, um, you know, making sure that people are aware of their rights and just looking out for their people. Because, you know, not only are these, these restaurant workers, you know, very important to the restaurant, but they're also their friends, their family, their colleagues. You know, they want to make sure that they're taken care of and feel safe. Well, and, you know, Mark, if I could no, jump please, in Please here. jump in. Please do. Um, you know, I think one thing that to keep in mind is, you know, uh, under the uh, Obama administration, 
you know, there there was there was some talk, tough talk on uh, you know deporting what they considered to be the criminal element of the uh, illegal immigrants in mm-hmm. America, that those that were convicted of crimes, that they were going to uh, search for them and, and deport them out of the country. And I think one of the things that is scary for a number of immigrants right now is that that sort of um, mission has uh, had a classic mission creep with the the Trump administration. They are, you know, looking to target not just convicted felons, but uh, anyone accused of uh, potential crimes in the United States, whether or not they've been convicted. And this has had a really chilling effect from the, the people that I've talked to. It's like people who have been working here in the United States, um, in in some cases for you know, 10 years or so, they have, uh, they don't have any criminal history. They, they claim to not even have like parking tickets. And they are the ones that are worried now. They're worried about being rounded up and deported, uh, even though they have been contributing members of the uh, U.S. economy. And that's where you're hearing more and more reports like that. And I, I, it's, it's really pitted also, as you point out in, your art, point out in the article, which I found really interesting, uh, this is all of the news, and, and um, clearly when this happened, when uh, the world-famous chef uh, who was uh, awarded the, the, the medal by, by, by President Obama, Jose Andres, pulled out of the deal with um, Trump, he's in your article very extensively, um, mm-hmm. uh, so, and the role he's playing here. So uh, before I talk about what that might be emblematic of, I mean, I'm curious how you, how you, how you found him in terms of what he was saying, uh, and um, uh, and you know what, what what he sees that has to happen. Well, um, I spoke to Jose, and you know he is um, he's a real champion of immigrants in America. Uh, you know he's obviously one himself. He was a, a Span- uh, immigrant from Spain. Uh, who became a U.S. citizen uh, in 2013? So you know he he and he and plus he owns so many restaurants and he knows you know he knows uh, who operates them, who actually runs them, both front and back of the house. Um, he has, uh, I think, he comes from a unique perspective because he's a businessman um, who's an immigrant, and I think he sees. Uh, multiple sides of the argument and he doesn't he doesn't want to polarize one side or the other i think he sees too much polarization in politics particularly around immigration and you know he's looking to try to find a middle ground where we can come together instead of you know fighting from the extremes and you know he wants people to understand um i think more the conservatives to understand that a lot of these immigrants you know they even the undocumented ones, they're contributing millions and millions of dollars to uh, in, in U.S. taxes. And often they will not see anything back because, you know, if they get caught, uh, they will be deported. And whatever they've contributed to the tax base, uh, obviously they won't be getting back in any sort of uh, beneficial way. But then he wants, you know, liberals to, to see that, you know, there are there are remedies for... Um, you know, undocumented workers beyond just 
deciding to put everyone uh, immediately on a citizenship path. You know, he he sees it as giving them work visas. You know, uh, let them work here. Uh, find ways for them to con- stay here and contribute contribute to the economy, and you know, prove themselves as uh, worthy of U.S. citizenship, so that five, ten years down the road, uh, they can also become citizens. So, I, I wonder what role you you all think that 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 the restaurateurs can really have in all this. Um, I mean, you you quote. Um, the uh, the vice president of communications from the other NRA, <laughs> the National <laughs> Restaurant Association. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm uh, <laughs> always there's those two initials always they always got to me the NRAs. But anyway, how do you how you see their role in all this? Do you think that this will have an effect on the debate? Do they think it's going to have an effect on the debate? Or are these people kind of more just standing up saying we have to protect our industry and not sure where this is going to go? Well, I think one thing that, that we're seeing that could have um, an effect on the debate is um, tomorrow there's going to be a pretty big strike in D.C. of restaurant workers. A lot of really important restaurants, including some of Jose Andres' restaurants, are shutting down um, as part of it's part of a broader um, protest. It's not just restaurants, but the, the restaurant um, impact of it is something that people are really focusing on because it's where you really see the impact of a day without immigrants. You know, there are, there are really big restaurants in D.C. that are closing for the entire day. Um, and then there are others that are going to be working on a skeleton crew. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's one way that, um, you know, that's one way to kind of make people really feel uh, the impact of, of what these executive orders and, and what this policy could potentially do. Um, and it's also something that that restaurant owners um, are trying to acclimate themselves to. They're trying to figure out their contingency plan if they do end up losing part of their workforce, what they're going to do. Because it is hard to find good people to work in kitchens sometimes. You know, people complain that there um, that there is a labor shortage in a lot of restaurants too. It, you know, it, it can be hard to find cooks. So so now um, they're really going to feel it tomorrow. They're going to be. You know, I've been talking to. Um, like general managers who, who typically are at the front of the house, and they're going to be in the back, like making guacamole or whipping burgers. And <laughs> um, and you know, and the customers are going to see that impact too. They're going to see it in the service, and they're going to see it in the fact that there's a limited menu available to them. It it's I mean it would be interesting. In some ways, it's like seeing the. This is part of to me the urban and um, I guess suburban rural divide in some sense. Of, of how this debate over immigration plays itself out. Um, and we don't, I think that, you know, the more this comes through, one of the things I was thinking about is reading the articles and reading the article on the other one, the other one in the post from the other day was that this may really be one of the ways that, that affects this immigration debate um, in some profound ways because we're talking about people's livelihoods. We're talking about businesses in America. We're talking about the people who work in them. We're also talking about a place where many Americans like to go, which is out to eat, whether it's at the low end of the scale, the upper end of the scale, and I think that's that's in some ways, um, Tim, like you know, like this could really have a greater impact and effect on this conversation uh, than than we think. Oh, it could have a huge impact. I mean, I, I think it's it's sometimes hard for people who have not worked in the re- restaurant industry um, to understand just how difficult it is. Um, you're 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 dealing with you know at, at a high volume restaurant with a place with 150 200 seats 
and that maybe goes through, you know, two, two and a half turns a night. You're talking about hundreds of meals being made. And you have to work really fast. You have to be very well prepared. Um, you have to know what you're doing. And uh, and you're doing it for, for, you know, a few dollars over minimum wage. It's really hard work. And there's not a whole lot of people, A, that are like um, qualified to do it. Um, uh, uh, let alone with the desire and and the <laughs> the youth to do it, um, it's a very demanding business. And I think you know if if suddenly a huge percentage of these people that work in kitchens, you know, making all of our meals and making them af- uh, helping in part making it affordable, if they suddenly um, have to pack up and leave the country, um, I think we would see a, a rather strong. Um, impact on number of fe- restaurants affected, whether it would be closed down or or the quality of the restaurant that would be left remaining. Like you end up being a battle between the man who wants his burger, who may be the same man who wants to see people deported and maybe has to change his mind because he loves his burger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, but and you you also really did kind of hit the celebrity chef circuit here. You also talked to Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tim talked to Anthony. Um, well, uh, how come you get to talk man. to the chefs? I don't understand yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, um, I've I've known Anthony for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he's always great for a quote. And he was uh, he didn't uh, he didn't he didn't uh, spare us on this one. I think you know his first reaction was that he just he thinks focusing just on the restaurant business right now is is. It's short-sighted, you know, and for him to say that, um, you know, I think it says a lot. I think he's worried about, you know, immigrants all across the spectrum in all different sorts of fields of endeavor. Um, He sees it as a real threat to, you know, what it means to live in this country uh, in 2017 and what it has meant historically for, you know, millions and millions of people who have uh, entered uh, our borders. And one thing to think about, too, um, you know, along the lines of what Anthony said, um, is that this, you know, this is not just the restaurant industry that's going to be affected. It's the entire restaurant supply chain um, because farm workers, you know, so many farms in this country, of course, rely on temporary workers who are immigrants. And um, this is something that people have been saying to us, too, uh, as they prepare for this strike. They're wondering if their, you know, if their suppliers will be affected, too, because they're also the same people who might be delivering food to restaurants or who might be working in the, the facilities that process um, vegetables or, or meats or poultry or anything. So, so it's really the entire food supply chain that could really see an impact, not just the consumer-facing part of it. You know, there's another aspect of this. It's not in this article, but I, I just like to bring it in just for a moment before we close. Amari, uh, I mean, you, you you wrote a really, I thought, really interesting piece about um, uh, can eating lead to understanding about, mm-hmm. about the travel ban? Yeah. Because to me, mm-hmm. it fits in. I mean, it fits it, it fits in to the flow of the, the article you, the two of you just did together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the, the idea that, 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 People eating food from countries that are affected by this travel ban can actually open eyes and change things uh, in a positive sense. Yeah, culinary diplomacy in a way. Right, right, <laughs> exactly, right, right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, one thing that we're seeing is that um, a lot of food writers and bloggers and just regular people who, who care about this industry are really trying to bring attention to restaurants that might be hurting um, because of all of these policies. So, you know, we've seen a number of lists across the country of, you know, where to get um, like Libyan food or food from Yemen or, um, or Persian food. Different cities are posting their own lists. And we also see, um, you know, bookstores that are really highlighting cookbooks um, with food from those countries as well. And it's kind of just a way to get people familiar with this food so that they see, you know, they see this as a culture, not just as, um, you know, a thing that, that is on the news every day. It's, it's kind of a way to bring more understanding to people in a way that also they're, they're more open to. I mean, everyone loves to eat. Everyone loves to go to restaurants. Uh, this is a way for them to, to do all that and also learn something new about a culture and, and also support someone who, who might really need your support at this point, too, because we've talked to a lot of restaurant owners who um, their businesses have, have been hurting since the election and even restaurant owners who, you know, maybe business is the same, but they are, they are having trouble just managing their business because they're also managing all of these personal concerns, too. Um, so, so there are some restaurants who are really trying to, um, you know, to, to, to be at the forefront of, of, you know, having that conversation with people and getting them to understand a culture, not just, you know, a news item or an executive order. It's something more than that. It's people and their food, too. I, I'll be very curious to see how the, the, your reporting on this goes. I mean, I, I've enjoyed both your works. I've enjoyed uh, o- over the years. Tim, what you've been writing over the years, I've really enjoyed a lot since you've been in the paper for a while. Um, and, and and Mara's work as well. So this is, I'm very curious how yeah. do, do you have a sense of where if you will take this particular subject um, on again or expand on it at all? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be a main. Um, you know, it's it's going to be something that um, that we're really going to be following closely over the coming months, um, especially you know as the impact. Um, continues to be felt in the industry um, and as the political situation evolves. Well, we, we, we look forward really to kind of continue this conversation with both of you uh, on this as we go. I think that uh, I've been contemplating for, for a while now reading what you've been writing in the Post and having you on here more just to talk about food but and also maybe now combine this food and politics with where this might take us. So uh, really good writing and, and it was really, I think, an important thing you just threw out there for us to contemplate. We'll be linking to this article on our website. We're talking with Tim Carman, uh, food writer and critic for the Washington Post, um, and uh, twice nominated, if I'm right, for the Beard Award, uh, Mara Jutkus, uh, who also is a food reporter for the Post, writing some incredibly interesting pieces. Uh, and I appreciate both of your time with us today here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, and do look forward to having you back. Thank, Thank you, Mark. you very much. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our intern is Michael Dixon, senior at Morgan State University. And our engineer, of course, Andre Milton. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews with Clean Cuts. And please send me your thoughts about Instagram to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast the Steiner Show. Share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.